Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Rafaela Danziger, who is Professor of Politics and Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. We talk about a book, Dilemmas of Inclusion, which was published in 2017 with Princeton University Press. The book investigates how and why political parties include Muslim candidates in Western Europe. Muslims have grown as a share of the electorate, so parties have an incentive to appeal to them. However, many Muslims also hold values on cultural issues such as gender equality or LGBT rights that differ strongly from other electorates that parties want to appeal to. This creates a dilemma, especially for parties on the left. Hence, when parties want to do more than symbolic appeals to Muslim communities, this can lead to negative trade-offs in the long run, such as unstable support patterns, but also a reduction in female candidates. The conversation also focuses on questions of minority representation more generally, and which factors prevent higher levels of migrant background politicians. If you want to know more about Rafaela and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under at rdanziger or visit her website. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hello, Rafaela. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tarek. Today, we're going to talk about your 2017 book, Dilemmas of Inclusion, in which you investigate the trade-offs for political parties to appeal to Muslim electorates. Before we talk about the book in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for writing this book? Thanks so much, Tarek, for this question, and of course, for having me um, on your wonderful podcast. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, take a step back a little bit, because I think for a lot of the work that we do, we kind of carry ideas around uh, for quite some time uh, and don't sometimes don't even realize how they may uh, cohere and, and go together. And uh, when I when I started writing uh, the book, I, I tried to bring sort of a, a few different strands together that I, that I've been thinking about for several uh, several years. And uh so the first one was that, and this really I, I noticed based on some of my earlier work, I noticed that a lot of immigrant origin populations in Europe uh, were really mobilizing quite extensively around election time. And they were doing so in ways that, uh, you know, what we would call uh, uh, quote unquote ethnic politics, uh, that is immigrant origin populations would draw on their heritage as being maybe from a particular village in Pakistan or belonging to a, a specific kin group. Uh, and it was really this identification um, uh, with, with, with these networks that connected them to electoral politics. So first it would be sort of in a, in a broker function. I know the, 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 the intermediary, inter immigrant intermediary with um, non-immigrant native politicians. And then later on, as immigrants became more uh, knowledgeable about um, the electoral systems and their, and their new environments as politicians. And of course, there's nothing new here from sort of the perspective of ethnic politics. We've we've known this for a long time that ethnicity can be a really 
powerful cue. Um, but that literature gen generally, uh, that ethnic politics literature generally deals with politics um, outside of Europe and outside of sort of the d advanced democratic context. Um, so, so African countries, India, or maybe in an earlier era in the US, uh, machine politics and immigrant origin populations. And one reason why it tends to be in, in um, uh, sort of less developed democracies is that one central claim is that it's sort of in the absence of a modern welfare state, uh, when you have these depersonalized bureaucracies, um, it's really important who you know, you need to be connected to a broker to get um, goods and services from the state. Um, and so ethnicity can be really a, a, a helpful um, link in this regard. And of course, I'm simplifying this is a much more sophisticated literature, but that, that's that's uh, one upshot. Um, but if that's true, you know, why would we see these same patterns um, in very advanced um, post-industrial societies in the UK, Belgium, Sweden, and so on? Um, and I was just sort of very intrigued by that, you know, that you have these uh, these what what political scientists might call these pre-modern ties grafted on these very modern institutions. So that was kind of uh, the first um, the first thing that had been on my mind for for a long time. And the other thing that I had noticed that I wanted to dig in more deeply was that another that that what stood out in this type of um, ethnic politics is that these um, these political networks and uh, the spokespeople that they uh, uh, produced were very, very male dominated. Um, and so they they would rely on social structures that migrants developed in their home countries um, and that they then bring to the destination country. And I found that uh, parties are really happy to rely on these networks, even if it means empowering individuals and groups who are much more uh, socially conservative, much more patriarchal than compared to the average voter. So when it comes to things like, um, you know, positions on women's rights, gay rights, uh, the treatment of girls in schools, you know, those positions are pretty far away from what these parties and the average voter of these parties would normally accept. And abstracting from that situation a little, a little bit, this, this kind of setup really taps into the general debate about multiculturalism. So this this question of uh, when and whether um, liberal democracies should uh, accept groups, often minority groups that are internally, what they call internally illiberal. So you know that they have some practices that maybe don't pass muster in a liberal democracy. And a lot of this debate has been carried out by political theorists. Um, they've produced really thought provoking uh, work on this topic, but I was interested to look at these debates from an empirical perspective. You know, I wanted to see, okay, you know, you have political parties that function in liberal democracies and minority populations are often portrayed, you know, often wrongly so, sometimes rightly, as uh, more socially conservative, more more liberal. How do political parties deal with the situation? Do they, do they actually empower se segments within those groups that are more socially conservative, more quote unquote illiberal um, than the average minority voter, or you know, what do they do with these with these tensions? Um, so kind of looking at the multicultural dilemma from an ex uh, empirical perspective, uh, specifically focused on parties, um, uh, that's something that I was interested in. And then finally, you know, one thing, and I know that that's something you've uh, looked at, have looked at as well, one thing that really interested me as well is, is this notion of electoral geography, uh, and more specifically, the idea that over the last maybe 30, 40 years or so, you have this movement of um, the native majority population to back to the cities, um, or, or to the cities. And these, these 
these voters are, uh, you know, they sort of prize themselves on being cosmopolitan, liking you know, ethnic diversity, um, inclusion, and so on. And, and they don't really like to vote for parties that are, you know, white, uh, native. They like diversity. At least that's what, what, for the most part, they state. But at the same time, they share the same urban space um, with minority populations who are quite distant from them in their uh, social preferences uh, when it comes to, again, you know, gender equality, uh, gay rights, uh, religiosity, uh, importantly. Um, and this, this, of course, is not unique to Muslims uh, in Europe today. This is a, something that we see throughout um, the last several hundred years is that minority, religious minority populations, they like to often be clustered in a dense urban space because it just makes practicing your faith a lot easier. If you can, um, uh, ha- you know, rely on these dense communities, they offer religious services, you know, kosher or halal foods, religious education, and so on. So I was interested in exploring what this uh, sort of preference clash, uh, clash in values, meant politically, um, especially since liberal, liberal cosmopolitans are typically in favor of diversity, and and kind of this presented a really vexing dilemma, especially uh, for the left, because. You know, going back to what I said earlier about these social networks among immigrant communities, the type of candidate that maximizes the minority vulture is often likely to be ideologically very, very far removed from um, sort of the, the 21st century core leftist supporter um, in uh, in urban areas. So that was something that I was interested in um, in digging in deeper. So that's a, in a nutshell, uh, you know, some of the motivations that, that led me to this. Yes, and we will definitely talk about some of the dilemmas uh, and the networks uh, in more detail throughout the podcast. I wanted to start with um, the observation that your book is strongly based on the empirical fact that Muslims have just become an increasingly relevant uh, electoral group throughout uh, Western Europe. Can you elaborate that development a little more? Um, sure. I mean, there, there are several... Um historical reasons why that is the case. And it, it differs a little bit by country, but, you know, you have a mix of uh, labor migration and refugee migration for the most part that um, has led to large inflows of Muslim migrants um, to to Europe. Um, so if you take Germany, for instance, in the 60s, they, a German uh, country started, uh, uh, German states started recruiting uh, Turkish migrants, also migrants from other groups, but Turks were the, the largest group guest workers to, to um, you know, help really help bring about the economic miracle that Germany uh, experienced, similar to France, what had uh, sort of the so-called Trente Glorieuse, where for 30 years there was a lot of economic growth, in large part because a lot of um, immigrant origin populations um, uh, made that happen. And many of them happened to come from uh, Muslim-majority countries. So that was sort of the first strand, post-war strand um, in continental uh, Europe. I say continental because in the UA- UK it was slightly different. You, you also had uh, a lot of labor migrants c- uh, come. They weren't necessarily guest workers. They, they, were, they were able to come because in, in, the, uh, in the 50s and 60s, uh, the UK still had a very expansive citizenship regime that included the, the Commonwealth countries. Um, so Pakistan, for instance, uh, uh, India, they, they sent a lot of migrants um, to England and uh, um, in a way that was uh, almost a little bit un- unanticipated by, by the British government at the time. But they also were enjoy- employed in similar, similar uh, economic sectors, manufacturing. So a lot of labor migration happening in the 50s, 60s um, and early 70s. And a lot of countries 
had no uh, no interest or no didn't really even think about integrating these populations because for the most part it was also assumed that they would eventually return back to their home countries but um uh, that happened to some extent um but as we know of course today for the most part uh, a lot of a, a large share of these population stayed in part paradoxically because european countries in the 70s uh you know after the oil crises and recession implemented pretty harsh immigration bans and these bans often have the effect of uh, uh, of leading immigrants who are still in the country to uh, you know not to leave because they're afraid they're not going to be able uh, to return um and so so that was sort of the first um one of the first waves of post-war war migration and then in addition to that in the 80s 90s and of course very much still today you have large um, refugee inflows uh and uh you know from from conflict zones Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Somalia, and so on. So it just so happens that a lot of these countries are Muslim majority countries. So there's nothing, you know, nothing unique uh, about the Muslim migration experience um, or the fact that these um, these people are of Muslim background. What, what, what sets many of them uh, apart, although maybe slightly different situation with Syrian migrants today, Syrian refugees, is that they come from uh, rural areas often um, in their in their home countries. So they're they're often more rural than than the average Pakistani or the average Moroccan, say. And so uh, these uh, these populations now have been in Europe for for quite some time, and they make up uh, a rising share, not just of the population of the of European countries, but also of um, citizens. Um, so countries vary uh, a lot in terms of how expansive their citizenship regimes are. But even in the more restrictive ones, Muslims have been residing in these countries for, for long enough, for the most part, that a large share um, have naturalized. And so when you look at the the largest countries of prior nationality, um, so you're looking at naturalizations of immigrant populations in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, maybe even more, the vast majority come from Muslim majority countries. So that gives them, of course, you know, a, a potential for political influence because as citizens, um, they can run for office, they can vote and so on. Mm -hmm. The book then focuses on this electoral group as a constituency and very much from a rational choice, vote-seeking perspective of political parties then asks, how can political parties appeal to these groups? And at the core of the book, as the title already tells us, is a dilemma. What exactly is that dilemma when political parties try to appeal to this Muslim share of the electorate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's there, there are some general dilemmas that parties face when including new groups, especially new groups that are um, disliked or viewed um, suspiciously by segments of the majority population. So in, in many ways, there's a very generic dilemma that has to do, okay, you include a new group. How does, who, how do existing voters, existing party members react to this group? Um, is it going to actually increase your, your, uh, net vote gains because the, the new group, uh, maybe it's disliked among some, some members, but not, not so much, um, that these members would actually, uh, and voters leave the party. Uh, and, and so there isn't much of a dilemma or alternatively, You know, there could really be a situation where including this new group leads to the large scale departure of a significant segment of, of the existing elect electorate. And so parties always face this dilemma. This is not unique to immigrants. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you also see this uh, with the representation of women, um, representation of, of um, racial minorities, non-immigrant racial minorities. 
Um, so that, that that's sort of the generic dilemma that um, parties face. But then there's also the more specific dilemma that I outline in the book and I briefly touched uh, upon already uh, that has to do with, with groups that are really quite far apart in their social issue of preferences from existing voters. And so typically when we see minority uh, inclusion happen uh, among political parties, typically, and of course there's variation, but typically it starts um, uh, from the left. So leftist parties, green parties are often the first ones to make that step. You know, they do have immigrant uh, or uh, um, equal treatment, non-discrimination, all these tenets, they they do include them in their platforms. And we know that uh, voters take them seriously on these issues when casting ballots. So typically this happens on the left first. But now what's interesting about, uh, again, the inclusion of um, Muslim voters, and especially the ones who live in cities and urban enclaves, is that their um, their stances on social issues are extremely far apart from the average leftist voter. So you can see that in survey evidence that Muslims are much less likely to have liberal views on gay rights. They're much less likely to think that women um, should should be uh, in the labor force in equal numbers uh, to men, and and so forth. Um, they're they're of course much more religious um, on average. You know we we know that uh, particularly in Europe, native voters are quite secular, especially for leftist parties. So they might be quite intolerant, really, of 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 religion and religious observance and religious tenets. And so this sets up this dilemma um, that normally the left might not face where, okay, you you want to be diverse, you want to be inclusive, you know that Muslim minorities face a whole lot of discrimination and prejudice in the labor market and the social sphere. Um, and so you want to include these groups, but at the same time, these groups adhere to values that um, really clash with your platform, um, the, the the views of your um core electorates. Um, so how do you how do you bridge that gap? And, and that's the, the dilemma that I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. One thing I was wondering about, and you show some empirical evidence, I think, in the book, um, is how well are uh, social attitudes, political attitudes of Muslims actually studied? Yeah, so uh, they could be studied better, of course. Um, uh, it's really hard to study um, study these attitudes systematically uh, because, you know, for reasons I won't uh, go into too much detail, the, the sampling strategies and so on um, just get very complicated in, in settings where you don't really can, you can't really rely on official statistics to know who's an immigrant and who's not or who's Muslim and who's not. But the, the data that we do have, so for instance, I draw on the European, so, European Social Survey a little bit and, uh, and also on um, a British survey. These surveys are not ideal in the sense that th- their aim is not to study Muslim views specifically. They just sort of, they have a nationally representative survey and as part of these surveys, they include sufficient Muslims if you aggregate over time to capture some of their views. Um, and that, there, yes, you do see um, that again, uh, especially when it comes to religiosity, when it comes to views about um, gender relations, they, they are quite far apart um, from the average voter, but also quite far apart from, especially from the, from the leftist voter. What's important here, I don't wanna paint the majority population as the you know extremely progressive and open to diversity and open to gender equality and uh, you know all the battles have been fought and won that is absolutely not the case and in fact in some of the evidence in the book I show that it's it's when um, when uh, a native uh, non-immigrant populations are confronted with Muslims that they often you know embrace gender equality 
uh, more in, in part because I think this is sort of a way to differentiate themselves from this population. So I, I don't want to I don't want to say that everything's well and good and the majority population uh, at all. Uh, but having said that, we do see these uh, stark differences. Um, they clearly do exist. And we, we, we see them very much when it comes to um, political participation uh, as, as candidates and uh, as office holders, where, again, uh, uh, you know, th th they're much more male. I should note that there are also important lines of commonality. So when it comes to views on, say, social spending, class issues, there aren't that many differences. So parties do have a common ground here, uh, which they could build on. Um, it's just that as um, social issues have become much more important um, over the last several decades uh, in structuring electoral behavior, you know, those are those issues are, are you know, where we see the, the largest preference divergence. In the book, then, you discuss different strategies that political parties can use to appeal to Muslim electorates. Can you elaborate these strategies for me? Uh, you're referring to the different uh, inclusion types? Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm asking because one, one, one of the inclusion types is sort of a mix of appealing to the minority population and appealing to the native non-minority population. And And it's 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 about Muslims in my book empirically, but I think this this sort of travels in a very broad way, or at least that's my hope. In, yeah, and so I, I, as you mentioned, I distinguish between three inclusion types. One is actually not inclusion; it's just exclusion. You know, parties figure they can't really win votes or elections by including minorities, so they just exclude. They're not considering any minority candidates. Another type is what I call symbolic inclusion. And um, here, what I've noticed is that parties will often nominate minority candidates when, yes, they, they do want to gain a foothold among the minority population. So they're starting to consider placing minority candidates on the ballot. But it's at the same time, what they really want to do as well is to signal to the non-immigrant, um, uh, uh, to the majority segments of the majority population, hey, we're diverse, we're not exclusive, um, we're not what some observers call Uh, sort of the pay, uh, um, pale male and stale, right? So the the white uh, male establishment, and uh, some some voter groups, uh, especially on the left, they respond to that. They might not feel comfortable in an all white all male um, political party, and so parties will nominate candidates um, from uh, minority backgrounds to to signal that. Um, and I and I call this symbolic inclusion because the the here the um, the minority candidate really kind of serves as a symbol. Their job is not necessarily to change or definitely not to change the platform or to uh, uh, bring minority issues to the forefront. Um, in fact, they really have to be in line with 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 a party platform uh, on all uh, sorts of preferences, but especially the, the, the issues where, um, you know, people are kind of afraid that minorities might stray too far from the party line. They have to be uh, very, uh, you know, very much fit with a party orthodoxy. Um, so I call that symbolic inclusion, and it has sort of a tokenistic flavor to it. And what's interesting about that type of inclusion is that, you know, others have written about some symbolic inclusion. I'm not the first one uh, to, to um, you know, use this phrasing. But I think in the, in the, in the past, the idea was, you know, that the minority candidate served as a symbol of inclusion and meant to, meant to um, signal this to the minority population. But I think that this actually doesn't work. Um, and it's not even intended necessarily because minorities often don't feel represented at all by these, um, by these representatives. And often that's not even the point, right? So the symbolization doesn't, doesn't work um, often on the part um, of the minority population. Um, and so it's, it's, 
I think it's much more, at least in the contemporary European setting, to some extent in the U.S. setting as well, it's much more the majority population that's the audience um, um, of this candidate selection. And then finally, often when you know when minor- when the minority electorate becomes more and more pivotal, you know it becomes harder to ignore in terms of um, uh, recruitment to win elections. That's when parties, uh, uh, I argue, kind of move away from the symbolic inclusion and uh, engage in what I call vote-based inclusion. So here, parties are really uh, intent on going after the minority vote. Because without it, they, they, they figure they're, they're not going to be able to, um, win, or at least not, uh, in ways that, uh, you know, maximizes their, the, the potential seats that they can gain. And there, the goal is less, um, to, you know, to signal anything to the majority population. It's really to signal to the minority, hey, we take you seriously. We, we want to get your vote. And to do so, parties will not, ne- not, not necessarily pick a candidate that pleases the, the non-minority population. They might pick, they, they want to pick candidates that, um, that are plugged into the networks, into the structures of the immigrant community, the minority community, and can, uh, really drum up the, that vote. Um, so they have to have connections, um, at the grassroots level, um, and they have to sort of have high social standing within the minority population to be able to deliver votes. So from that perspective, one could expect that um, directly appealing to these minority groups um, could be easier for the mainstream right because they would be ha- we would have a stronger overlap between the preferences of the minority group and the typical electorate of the mainstream right in terms of social conservativeness. But you argue in the book that for the right too, there's a dilemma. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a great uh, question, I think, because... You know, we often kind of assume that, sure, immigrants, minorities, they um, they will be left as supporters. And, you know, I think in the U.S., this is sort of the idea that demography is destiny is very much enshrined, although recent events kind of tell, it, tell a slightly different story. But there's really no reason to think that because immigrants, as you suggest, um, often are more socially conservative. They're also often more... Um, individualistic, which is not surprising given that they made the decision to leave their their country and sort of strike um, to try to make it on their own. And uh, and so in, in these ways, they're more, they're more religious, I should note, as you mentioned, um, on average. This, of course, you know, varies on the settings that we're looking at, but th- that is the case certainly among um, European Muslims, also Hispanics in the U.S. today. And so they themselves would often feel more at home in um, center-right uh, conservative parties because these parties value tradition, they value religion. And on the flip side, uh, as you suggest, center-right parties, even Christian democratic parties, um, should have an interest in recruiting this electorate. And to some extent they do, and we, we definitely see signs of this happening. But to your question, they face the, the dilemma that still a large share of their supporters, precisely because they value tradition, like things, uh, like, like, like to, uh, keep things, um, as they are. And that means often not including, um, minority populations, not diversifying their countries. And they often feel quite uncomfortable with, um, with ethnic diversity. This is changing to some extent. Um, and, uh, you know, Christian democratic, uh, center right parties are, are realizing that, you know, they, to, to win the cities, they, they need to be open to diversity. Uh, and, and there's a, you know, wide range of stances that these parties take, uh, both within countries and across countries. But fundamentally, they do have this dilemma that a good chunk of their voters, unless it's already departed for the radical right, uh, a good chunk of their voters um, is, is you know, feels uncomfortable um, with diversity 
uh, or may even hold uh, pretty hostile attitudes towards minorities. Mm -hmm. You then argue that which strategy parties are going to apply. So more exclusive, more symbolic, more inclusive strategies. And that will depend on the electoral incentives presented to the parties. Can you explain that to me in a little more detail? Um, sure, I think. So on the one hand, you have these big national institutions that uh, kind of really structure who can become a voter and and to what extent minorities are going to be are going to be empowered. And so some of them have to do with um, just citizenship regimes, right? To, are immigrants able to naturalize? Are they going to be able to vote as citizens? In some countries, Sweden is an example, um, you you don't actually have to be a citizen to vote um, uh, in local elections or even run for office. So in some countries, this won't matter so much. Um, so citizenship regimes are very important as are local electoral institutions. Um, so what one, one kind of um, persistent finding we have in the minority uh, representation literature is that um, cities that divide their um, elections into districts, so where you know you have a, a given city and you divide that up into say 10 or 20 wards, they tend to be conducive to electing minority populations, assuming these minority populations are geographically con geographically concentrated, because it's very likely that in some of these wards, um, if if these groups are large enough, um, that they that they form an important voting block um, to be able to influence elections. And again, this is relies on the fact that minorities are not evenly spread out across the city, which is most often the case, uh, versus uh, the opposite, which is at-large elections, which just means the city is one big electoral district. And so it, it does. there's really no uh, um, payoff to geographic concentration, um, because if you're 10% of the city's vote, you're 10% of the city's vote, irrespective of where you settle, versus in the district, it could be you're 10% of the city's vote, but in uh, in a couple of wards, it's actually 60% and zero and many others. So that's, you know, there, there, there are several other elect local electoral um, rules that can make a difference. For instance, preference votes. Um, so some parties will produce these electoral lists uh, uh, in, in some countries. This is not the case everywhere where, you know, they rank candidates from one to 10 and say, say there's 10 candidates that are ranked from one to 10 and the party wins five seats. Candidates ranked one through five you know, will we'll get a seat, the rest won't. In some settings, in Belgium, for instance, uh, voters can change the preference ranking uh, through, uh, I'm sorry, can change the ranking through preference votes. So they don't, they don't just vote for the party. They also say, I want to, I specifically want um, this candidate to be moved up the list or, or another candidate. If uh, groups really mobilize behind their candidates, um, this can really shake up um, the order of the list. So that's in, in the example I just gave, maybe somebody was placed on number nine, but then they get so many preference votes because they were able to um, to mobilize their community that they move up to place four. And lo and behold, that means they can actually enter parliament because the party won five seats. Um, so there, there are a bunch of rules, both at the national level and at the local level that make it more or less likely that parties will confront an immigrant electorate that is actually powerful and potentially powerful in influencing elections. And so those are the types of incentives that I um, that I'm interested in that I think really matter, you know, having these permissive rules, but then also, of course, having a large enough um, immigrant origin population to um, to swing elections or to to make it to, to, to turn the immigrant group into a pivotal constituency. Mm -hmm. And then simply put, the more power this uh, share of the electorate has, the more likely it becomes that uh, political parties should include a 
candidates from these groups. And there you also strongly emphasize um, the personal ties that um, these leaders often have within those communities, right? Absolutely, yes. Um, so I should say this is sort of uh, in some ways net power. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, there's often a counter mobilization um, against immigrants, uh, especially in Europe where you have proportional representation rules. And so you have a bunch of parties and many of them are or some of them um, are radical right parties. So, so you know, parties, off, obviously mainstream parties take this into account. It's not just uh, the absolute um, votes that immigrants can deliver, but also weighed against the potential backlash. Um, that that might uh, generate. So so looking at these net vote gains, yes, absolutely. This is, I think, you know, the, the data clearly show that, um, is that as numbers of immigrant uh, origin voters rise, uh, especially if they can vote, inclusion becomes more likely net uh, of this, net of this backlash. Um, and to your question, one thing that is really convenient for political parties is to be connected to individuals within the immigrant community that enjoy high social standing, that know a lot of immigrant voters that are, you know, maybe sit on um, community boards or the boards of, of mosques, um, other religious institutions. And so they really have this very important broker function, either as politicians themselves or as intermediaries where, you know, vote mobilization just becomes extremely effective. Uh, you don't need to canvas at every single door. You can you can sort of tell um, the, the community leader sort of your interests and that community leader will uh, will then uh, do the mobilizing for you. That's been done, you know, for many, many years and it's not unique to immigrant origin populations, of course, but uh, uh, that's what we observe in, um, in Europe today and European cities. Uh, and I should note, especially so because on the majority population side, these networks uh, over the last you know, 30, 40 years have been declining. So you can you can think about trade unions um, as being institutions that were really helpful to get out the vote for left parties. Um, you didn't, again, you didn't need to knock on every uh, voter's door. You had the union representative and you had the trade union uh, doing that work for you. Well, the, those institutions and many others, churches are another example, uh, have been declining for, for a long time. So uh, in, in some ways, parties are compensating for that um, by um, recruiting immigrant electorates. And then in the book, you also analyze the consequences of this. And as we might expect from a dilemma, uh, the consequences are complicated and not only to uh, the advantage of, uh, of the parties who use these more inclusive strategies. Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think often this only emerges in the long term. Um, and I think this is really the fault of political parties. Um, so some of the consequences that I highlight uh, are the fact that um, parties who've been who've been engaging in this type of vote based inclusion, and we see this, uh, we see this in the UK um, quite clearly, because in part because it's been unfolding for so much longer than in other countries, because in the UK, um, immigrants from Pakistan uh, and Bangladesh, uh, who are, you know, the, the Muslim majority countries that are quite present uh, in, in the UK, immigrants from those countries, they've been immigrating for quite some time and they uh, have been participating for quite some time. And uh, and the Labour Party specifically has really failed to build programmatic links, I would say, to these constituencies. They've played this game of, of uh um, empowering brokers, um, not really caring so much about um, platforms, uh, not no, very little in terms of programmatic linkages at, at the local level, even though I should note this could have been a possibility because obviously they're, they're very, uh, 
you know, the class concerns that are widely shared, um, uh, maybe less so today as the Labour Party has become much more the province of the educated middle income voter, but certainly over uh, uh, previously very much uh, shared class concerns. But it's harder to build these class based coalitions than to simply go to um, an ethnic broker and say, can you please deliver these votes for me? Um, in exchange maybe for um, a seat of the, uh, on, the, on the council or uh, some say in some uh, some other matter. Um, and so I think the Labour Party um, has been uh, quite lazy um, in, in pursuing sort of the, this approach, very effective in, in terms of vote mobilization, but not so much in terms of real representation. Um, and then over time, it's come back to haunt the party because minority uh, voters and especially Muslim voters are just not tied to the Labour Party at the local level, uh, not as strongly, I should say, as they might have otherwise been. Um, and so they can, they use what you see in, in enclaves, not, 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 I wouldn't say this characterizes all of the Muslim community, of course, I have to be really careful to say this is an internal uh, a community that's very internally diverse. But in the urban enclaves, um, what has happened is that uh, vote switching is, is, is quite common. You see you know, conservatives winning, liberal Democrats winning. And uh, in some ways, this is, this is um, of course, a good sign because you never want a group to be captured by one political party, um, as for a long time has been the case, say, with African-Americans and the Democratic Party. That, that also really dilutes the power um, uh, of the, of the um, average minority voter. But we see kind of this, this not very programmatic uh, uh, linkage between voters and, and parties. And it's really hurt. Uh, it's really hurt the Labour Party because essentially, what it what it, it, it's losing seats that it should not be losing um, if if voters were um, voting based on ideology. Um, it, it, it's really failed to build these linkages over time. Mm -hmm. I think I've also recently seen data on Germany where there's been a big shift of I think Turkish origin uh, voters from the Social Democrats to the CDU just in the last three years or so, and there's actually been, been a quite big shift. What I was wondering about uh, wouldn't as another potential programmatic link, isn't there a failed opportunity that goes through more progressive immigration and citizenship policies? Because this should something be clearly something that these groups have an interest in. And they would also think of my own research where I think social democratic parties have shied away from more progressive uh, positions on these policies very often because they were, I would argue, overestimating uh, the, uh, the anti-immigrantness of their own electorate. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Um, and I think that's something that the, that especially social democratic uh, parties can do more of. Having said that, uh, you know, one, one thing that I was really interested in seeing is, you know, when we think of progressive policies, green parties are probably more progressive on a lot of these issues than our social democratic parties. But if you actually dig down and look at the local level and see how some of the green parties are recruiting immigrant um, origin uh, voters, It's not that different. Often it's not um, based on progressive policies, at least not when, um, when you, when you talk about this kind of vote based inclusion where parties think, okay, we, we have to capture part of this um, neighborhood. We have to make sure this, this group turns out. You know, they're, they, they also, you know, they have much more progressive policies, policies on average on immigration and other ma minority related matters than do social Democrats, but when it comes to sort of the, the grassroots mobilization, the get out the vote drives and, and, and the calculations that ultimately, ultimately lead them to select political candidates in the, in the cases where it's happened, it's not that different from the way the other parties are doing it. And I think here it's really important to distinguish between 
programmatic outreach, um, which can be very successful, as you have mentioned, versus, you know, the selection of candidates, the, the, the hard-nosed calculations that go on in these, in these cities uh, in terms of, you know, what electorate can we turn out? Keep in mind, these, these elections are relatively low turnout elections. And so by capturing a segment uh, and increasing uh, their turnout, that can, you know, that can really make a difference in a big way. Um, so I don't disagree with you, but I think it happens alongside these m- more contradictory um, developments where kind of ideology really clashes, which with a party ideology, stated ideology really clashes with, with what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. When I was now uh, preparing uh, for the podcast and reading your book again, uh, I was reminded of a debate, and you hinted at this already, that's currently going on in the United States after the presidential election. And that is the, the appeal of the Democratic Party to Hispanic voters. Do you see the same dilemmas and some parallels there as well? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, I, I think it's a really interesting um, parallel um, because, as you suggest, a lot of um, characteristics of the Hispanic population can be. We also see that among Muslims in Europe. So, that on average, and again, we're talking about averages here. There's always going to be exceptions and states or cities where things play out very differently. But on average, Hispanics are much more religious than the average Democratic voter, for sure. They tend to be more uh, more likely to be small business owners, so they might be more interested in the types of economic policies that uh, Republicans propose. Looking at survey data, there also are, uh, which I actually did, did recently, they, they also are much more socially conservative. Um, so they score much more highly on um, what, what uh, social scientists call hostile or ambivalent sexism. So these are scales that are developed to, to measure how Uh, sexist and patriarchal um, respondents are. You know, these values are quite high throughout the U.S. and in also many European countries, but Hispanics actually stand out um, for um, having particularly high values on these scales. So in these ways, they don't necessarily fit, as you suggest, with the democratic platform. And then in addition, there are some more idiosyncratic reasons uh, having to do with countries, country of origin effects, like uh, uh, especially immigrants from Cuba, um, Venezuela. They um, they're very anti-communist, anti-socialist, um, given their, their um, personal backgrounds. And to the extent that Democrats are seen as um, a socialist party, you know, they, they just cannot see themselves as um, finding a home in that party. So, um, so that sets, uh, sets them apart a little bit, you know, that, that particular experience from Muslims, but in terms of their, in Europe, um, but in terms of their um, social preferences, absolutely, we see a lot of parallels. And one thing I should also note, you had asked about the consequences um, for parties when they include Muslims, which I hadn't really talked about, is that when when parties do include a lot of Muslim candidates in a vote-based fashion, meaning they really want to drum up the vote and recruit people who have high standing in these communities, we see this clash of, you know, you include a lot of Muslim politicians, it means a decline in gender equality, a decline in women in your party as um, as candidates. And so that's a really um, important trade-off. And it will be interesting to see um, whether we some- see something similar among Hispanics, because one of the, uh, I've analyzed some survey data where, where um, you know, within the Democratic Party, we do see, this was back uh, in the primary days, we do see that Hispanics are were much less likely um, to um, favor female candidates than the average Democratic voter. So that would be an, really an interesting question to pursue. Uh, in the future. We 
have already established that your line of argumentation strongly follows a vote-seeking logic of political parties. Um, and I thought it was really impressive how strongly then uh, your empirical findings and the, the, the full argumentation fits with this vote-seeking perspective. Um, there was another parallel I was reminded of, and that is actually the uh, long time ago, late 19th century debate among uh, social democrats and ironically the debate about uh, female suffrage so the extension of the franchise to women and there in social democratic parties very often there was an argument that was present against the extension of the franchise because women were more conservative so there there, there was this argument against extending the franchise and i think one from an electoral vote-seeking perspective and i think one reason then that social democratic parties changed was just that it was such a misfit with their other ideology to not have women vote. So just from a policy ideological perspective, there was a misfit. And that I'm somehow also wondering about these questions of dilemmas, of trade-offs, of inclusion of these candidates. Don't we have to see more of this inclusion uh, from a perspective of these parties just from an ideological per policy-seeking perspective? Yeah, so I think, and this is certainly how I also um, started this project, and I, I really like your parallel um, a lot. But what the data show is that, yes, if you look at within countries, uh, and so this is based on the four countries that I analyze, um, which are Belgium, Austria, Germany, and the UK, I limit it to these four countries because, as I outline in the book, it's basically you have to create all of the data sets yourself because there's no data on, on Muslim office holders or immigrant origin office holders and candidates. But if you look at within countries, it is true um, that left parties include more than right parties. In other words, uh, you know, they, they have more minority candidates um, than do right parties. And that would, on the face of it, would, would um, just be in line with their ideology. They say they're more inclusive. And even if there's clashes with ideology when it comes to uh, including these groups, um, you know, so be it, right? Uh, we, we kind of, this is ideology where, where for inclusiveness, we have to include them. And so if you look at within, within countries, that might very well, you think that might very well be the case. But when you compare across countries, you see, for instance, that, you know, the left in Austria, which is a very restrictive regime um, where Muslims do not have much electoral power because of citizenship and electoral laws, the left in Austria is less inclusive than the right in Belgium, which has a much more open regime. And so then that really that really makes us question whether uh, whether it really is the just the sort of ideology and we really need to get over ourselves and be inclusive versus, well, you know, within a country, the right calculates our electorate doesn't really like inclusiveness so much. So we're not going to include and the left left things. Well, you know, all else equal, it still might on, on balance uh, uh, work for us now. I don't want to say that every single uh, party gatekeeper um, is motivated solely by these vote seeking objectives and, and uh, some are, you know, really have um, really pursue this goal of inclusiveness. Um, it, but what I am saying is that by focusing on these ideologies alone, it, it just does not explain the patterns of inclusion that we see across uh, countries and within within contexts. We have, now, we have now largely focused on this question from a, the perspective of political parties, but we can, of course, also take the perspective of um, a more broader view of descriptive representation and just 
uh, observe the fact uh, that people with immigrant backgrounds uh, are much less represented in, in, in parliaments than they should be in terms of their size of the electorate. The, your book already gives one reason why this might be the case, but your research more broadly has, uh, has studied this from several perspectives. Before we talk about your other research on this, can you explain to me what usually the main reasons uh, are that are given in the literature, why there is less descriptive representation of these groups? I'm sure. Um, so when it comes to immigrant origin um, candidates and politicians, Uh, a lot of the research, um, especially coming out of Europe, where you have strong parties and where parties are very important in um, selecting candidates versus, say, people just kind of running on their own and, and not needing the, the blessing of party gatekeepers. A lot of that research comes to the conclusion that um, these leaders are really um, at the center of things. So if if leaders would just include more immigrant um, candidates and would place them on list positions that are competitive, so that is not at the very bottom of the list where they just are, are, are going to be condemned to never winning a seat, but really placing them at the top of the list. You know, if, if party gatekeepers were more inclusive, we would see parity. We would see that um, whatever the shares of immigrants in the electorate, they're going to have the same share um, in parliaments. Right now, these shares are, are much lower um, than than would be what would, would be parity. Um, so that's a, a, um, a, a quite a salient explanation in the literature, and one that uh, that that I've also supported in some of my research. Uh, and of course, these party gatekeeper decisions, as we already talked about, are kind of inf influenced by both um, their own feelings and potential prejudices about a given group, uh, uh, but also even if gatekeepers were completely free of prejudice, they have to take into account how, how their voter bases feel about inclusion. Now, one of the implicit assumptions that this line of argument makes is that, well, there are enough immigrant origin candidates uh, to draw from. The pool is deep enough and broad enough that if party gatekeepers just wanted to include them, they, they would be able to. The supply is not, you know, the supply of candidates is not, not an issue. As an aside, one of the things that researchers have found in the case of uh, female representation, the underrepresentation of women, uh, especially in the U.S. case, uh, and this is, you know, studies pioneered by um, Jennifer Lawless and Richard Fox, They actually found that, well, you know, when women run, they're not more likely to lose to men, but they're just much less likely to run in the first place. They're much less likely to put themselves forward for, for a variety of uh, reasons. And so it's really the supply problem, uh, some people argue, that is that is at the heart of um, women's underrepresentation in the U.S. And so it could be that this is also an issue um, when it comes to immigrant origin populations, but it's, it's something that we haven't studied as much. And you have now a great uh, forthcoming uh, study, forthcoming article in the American Journal of Political Science, where you try to address exactly this question for uh, immigrant uh, origin candidates um, and the question of how they compare, are they as likely to run uh, as natives? Can you explain that study to me? Um, sure. You know, it's, I feel like this is one of these questions where It's such a simple question, and yet to answer it, um, a lot of machinery is necessary. Because on the one hand, you might think, well, let's just survey a bunch of immigrants and a bunch of natives, see whether or not they're interested in running, whether they differ uh, on certain characteristics, and then then we have our answer. But the problem is that uh, one sort of just surveying 
natives and immigrants, uh, you know, adjusting the samples in a way that we have enough immigrants, enough natives is, is often quite difficult because we don't have that information. But even more so, uh, and more importantly, you know, if we want to, if we want to gain an understanding of whether or not immigrants differ in a lot of ways um, in their characteristics um, from elected politicians, not only do we need to sample a lot of immigrants, we also need to sample a lot of elected politicians and a lot of um, candidates who maybe never, uh, you know, ran for office but didn't get um, elected, um, because only then do we really have enough uh, of a sample of these different groups uh, to to make valid inferences. And we, we often face this issue in epidemiology when we study rare events, right? So we really want to we want to understand what causes a certain outcome, certain disease, maybe, um, and to to understand that we need to oversample the rare event. In our case, the rare event is not a disease. It's, it's uh, running for office or being then being elected to office. And uh, to to get at this issue, I uh, teamed up with uh, um, political scientists in Sweden, uh, Cora Vernby, who's at uh, Stockholm University, and Per Nieman and um, Karloska Lindgren, and they're, they're at Uppsala. And what's really nice about the Swedish case and some other European countries is their uh, governments uh, have uh, very, very, very detailed data on every resident living in the country. So they they know an astounding amount uh, about these uh, about their populations, um, including whether or not they ever ran for office whether or not they were elected um, and, and, you know, immigrant background, education, age, all sorts of things. And so we were able to um, use these data or uh, basically rely on that information to come up with with um, a survey that oversampled people of immigrant background, oversampled uh, candidates, oversampled candidates who actually made it into elected office to kind of look at whether or not uh, immigrants are less likely to have the traits that make it likely for them to enter office, whether or not immigrants are interested in running for office in the first place, and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then what do you find? Yeah, so we find that uh, in a nutshell, supply is not the problem. So uh, there are more than enough immigrant candidates, or Im immigrant respondents who not only say they're interested in running for office, they also score very similarly on things that we know are correlated with running for office and becoming a politician. So for instance, uh, internal efficacy, um, those are questions um, related to you know, uh, uh, whether or not they think they would be a good politician, whether they have confidence in themselves to um, influence politics um, and so on, as well as external, uh, external efficacy, that is whether or not they think the political system is responsive, um, they score uh, very similarly on political socialization, you know, whether they grew up with politics, uh, discussion network. So on all of these variables that time and again, political scientists have, have said, uh, you know, uh, are correlated with political participation, but also running for office, immigrants are um, very, very similar to natives. And then also they, when directly asked, have you ever considered running for office? Um, there's, there's not much difference between immigrants and natives. So we can really rule out um, that explanation that party gatekeepers themselves often fall back on. They say, well, I would have liked to include an immigrant candidate, but there's just not enough of them. Um, and, you know, we see this, we see this in many fields. We see this in hiring, uh, at companies, uh, universities, and so on. This claim, I would have liked to be more, um, diverse in my inclusion uh, strategies, but I just, you know, I just, 
the pool is just not there. The pipeline just is not there. And maybe that's true in a limited sense and that, you know, maybe gatekeepers are just not plugged into the right networks um, and they uh, they don't see these potential immigrant candidates. But certainly our research shows that it's not true um, that immigrants are not interested in running for office, which I should note, going into this project, we thought is a possibility because immigrants, you know, they, they often need to get settled. Uh, they need to get settled economically. Socially, um, they face a new political environment. Many of them come from countries that are not democratic. So the idea that they the, that they might not be as interested in running for office compared to natives is, is not a far-fetched one. And we thought was definitely worthy of testing. But what we end up finding is that uh, it's just not the case. They, they have an, a, the same interest as natives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also thought this was very interesting and, and, and surprising in a way. I would have gone into this with a different expectation. So if we see, okay, it is not the supply and we know there are these strategic dilemmas for party leaders in increasing descriptive representation, what is a long-term solution? How can we improve uh, descriptive representation for these groups? So I think one way is to show that when immigrant candidates run, they don't do worse than native candidates. Now, that might be a very you know, cynical approach, um, but it's probably a realistic approach um, um, as, a, as a first step, right? So, and you see this with uh, examples with women candidates as well, um, that you know, surveys show time and time again that women candidates on average don't do worse than, than male candidates, and sometimes even, they, they, they sometimes even do better. Now, these surveys often abstract from what's really going on and political campaigns can be really ugly and sexist and so on. So I don't want to make too much of a point here. But I think one important point is just to show parties that, look, this is this is actually in your interest. Um, that would be sort of the cynical, a little bit cynical, pragmatic approach. Another approach um, that immigrant candidates have taken is to say, fine, if you don't want to include me, political party, mainstream political party, I'm going to run. Uh, on a separate ticket, I'm going to run on an immigrant uh, label, immigrant party. We see this more and more now, especially at the subnational level. Now, these parties often don't make huge gains. Uh, their vote shares aren't, uh, aren't especially large, but they're large enough that they take away important votes from, from mainstream parties. And so I think that that's another way, to, you know, for immigrant origin uh, uh, candidates and communities to flex their muscle and to show Uh, to show parties that um, you know it, there's there's more than one way to to get included uh, in politics, and then of course a much more you know long run, much harder approach is to highlight areas of common interest. I, I just I'm a little bit skeptical of that because I think over time uh, social democratic parties really have had a chance to to campaign on the shared class backgrounds often uh, of their constituency uh, their constituents and immigrant origin constituents. And it, it happened initially, you know, immigrants, especially in Germany, were initially um, recruited into uh, trade unions. I mean, there was surely some resistance as well, but but, but many um, had, had strong allegiances to their unions. Um, but that's really fallen by the wayside. And I think it's in part because that type of work is just a lot harder to do for political parties. Uh, there's lots of examples where it's just very difficult to build um, cross-ethnic class-based coalitions, even though I think in the long run for social democratic parties, that, that would be, if that if they were to pull that off, that would be um, the most promising strategy, uh, but just also one that's that's very difficult in the short term. Mm -hmm. 
There are still so many open questions. I was also wondering about um, potentials of uh, anti-discrimination, anti-racism protests, for example, that we're currently seeing. However, we're already at an end of the podcast. I have one final question for you, Rafaela, that I always ask people, and that is for reading recommendations. One piece of political science and one other piece. Uh, yes, and I've listened to your podcast, so I already knew this was coming, so I am a little bit prepared. Um, and I have two uh, books to recommend that uh, really speak to one another. They're about the United States. Um, the non-political science book is a book that came out uh, 10 years ago. And uh, many of your readers will have heard about it. It's called, um, uh, not readers, listeners. <laughs> It's called uh, The Warms of Other Suns, The Epic Story of M America's Great Migration. And it's by Isabel Wilkerson, who's a journalist. Um, it's a study about uh, the so-called great migration of African-Americans from the South to uh, the North uh, and the West um, that started, uh, I think, around 1915 and um, up until the 60s and 70s. And it's a really wonderful book that is very much, uh, um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not at all a fiction book, it's nonfiction, but it's, it's written from the perspective of several um, individuals of composite characters, but drawn actually uh, based on interviews, I think of over a thousand people. And so tells the story of this migration in a very um, a poignant uh, a way that really makes you feel how treacherous often this journey was, you know, sort of things like driving from um, Florida to California uh, f uh, was actually a, a life-threatening, potentially life-threatening event. Uh, something that I hadn't hadn't appreciated fully, um, so I, I I really enjoyed this book a lot. Um, also because it it uh, and this brings it back to migration because it shows that many of these processes are very similar to what we think of when we think of it, international migration. Yes, it's one country, uh, uh, but at the same time, there's, you know, similar similar hurdles emerge and similar processes in terms of you know kind of what we call chain migration and and connection to to family and so on. Uh, uh, happen in the context of this great migration. So I would really uh, recommend this book. It's a, it's a very great read. And then uh, linked to this book uh, in substance is a book by a political scientist, um, Jessica Traunstein. It's called Segregation by Design, Local Politics and Inequality in American Cities. As we've touched upon briefly in, this, in the podcast, immigrant uh, origin minorities are often spatially segregated. And this is even more so the case for um, African-Americans African uh, and to some extent immigrant con constituencies in the United States. And of course, one uh, fallback to that question, like, well, you know, why do we have so much segregation is, uh, you know, preferences, uh, racism, people might not want to share common space. Uh, and that's certainly a, a part of the story. But in this book, Jessica Traunstein really shows that uh, it's really systematic actions by local government that have to do um, with zoning policies, land use policies um, that are really designed to protect the property values um, of um, white residents that much of the segregation that we see today can be tied directly linked back uh, back and quite deliberately so to these lo local government decisions. So there's nothing sort of organic about this that, you know, just people settle where they want to settle and that's it. Uh, no, there's a, a whole machinery of um, local government regulations Uh, and mobilization um, for these regulations that that has led to these outcomes. And 
I should note what's really cool about this book too is that I think it's the only political science book that I know that uh, the prologue is actually a cartoon, uh, like a comic strip um, that um, that encapsulates the argument um, and a sort of a showing a, a family that is uh, trying to find a house that is good for their good for their uh, little baby that's going to soon be born and has good schools and good public goods and so on and kind of what the trade-offs that emerge when this family tries to um, find a good place to live. Um, uh, so, so I really highly recommend this book. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Rafaela. I, this was really a, a very interesting conversation. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. <laughs>